Good morning, Illuminate. It's always so good to be with you guys. Just to add to what Lisa said, ladies, if you haven't yet participated in our women's ministry, I strongly encourage you to do so. We have some of the finest Bible teachers and group facilitators that I've ever been around. You know, God uses three things to transform us. He uses his word, he uses his spirit, and he uses his people. And women's ministry is built around those three things. So if you haven't gotten connected yet, man, I encourage you to do so. And you can get more information, hit that QR code on the back of the seat, or you can talk to somebody out at the lot as well. So, hey, I just want to thank you guys for being here, hanging with us for our study in the book of Romans. Been challenging. I mentioned last week that what I have come to understand is that the hardest truths often produce the softest hearts. Romans chapter one. Paul begins to level humanity. He speaks to the God deniers, essentially saying you have no excuse and you know it to be true. The fingerprints of God are everywhere. They're revealed through creation, through what has been made, design, order, complexity, imply a designer. The more complex the design, the more intelligent the designer. You know it to be true. The reason why people dismiss God's reality is because they want to live life on their own terms. And it's the idea that if, if I can dismiss God's existence, then there's no one to hold me accountable. So I'm going to do whatever I want to do in life. It's interesting because one of the, especially for the younger generations, when they are asked, what is the greatest of all virtues? You would think they might say generosity or kindness or love. They don't. You know what they express? People in general, autonomy. In other words, the idea, don't tell me what to do. Nobody will tell me what to do. I'll live my own life my own way. But there is this sense that there, if there is a creator God, then he's probably good. He probably has something to say about what I do. So the God deniers, Paul says, you're actually without excuse. And then at the end of chapter one, he gives this long list of vices or sins. You deny God and there is a natural trajectory to where you land. You're going to end up worshiping the wrong things. To worship is to ascribe worth to something. We're all worshipers and we all worship something. We all ascribe ultimate worth to something, someone, some relationship, you name it. We're all worshipers. You can't deny that. We were created to worship, but when your worship is not placed in God, it will be placed elsewhere falsely, and it will let you down. Here's the natural trajectory of where people end up as, uh, as ultimately, I guess you could say, especially in our modern context, they worship themselves. Here's the list. Chapter 1, verse 29. They, those who reject God, were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. They're malicious. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. They invent new ways of evil. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, there is an accountability to them. They, they understand this. Not only do they do them, but they actually give approval to those who practice them as well. Chapter one ends. Paul begins chapter two with a shocking sentence. And you can't understand the depth of what he writes unless you understand what he's just written. After he lays down all of these vices, 
He understands that this letter is meant to be read to the congregation, and no doubt there are some who are sitting there going, oh, man, those pitiful heathens, those horrible pagans. Thank God I'm not like them. You can just sense the eye roll on the part of, well, those who were gathered in the church. Chapter one, he levels the God deniers, but in chapter two, he's about to level religious people. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you actually condemn yourself because you, the one who judges others, you practice the very same things. Well, now he has everybody's attention. It's human nature to look down on others. I don't care who you are. Everybody looks down on somebody. Why? Out of our own insecurities, our own desires to be perceived a certain way, and so we'll put somebody else, we'll judge others to make ourselves feel better about who we are. And then if I can focus on your junk and what's wrong with you, then I don't have to focus on what's wrong with me. It's just, it's human nature. Paul's drawing back the bow. He's about to let the arrow fly. And his words ring true because religious people can be especially competent at judging others. And as those in the congregation that might be tempted to think, oh, those poor, wicked sinners. Paul is quick to say, and you're one of them. Really? Really? Come on now. Maybe this is like hyperbole, an overstatement for the purpose of emphasis. Really? I mean, can churchgoers be ruthless and heartless? Well, we know they can be gossips. Can they be ruthless and heartless? Think of it this way. There are different ways to be rebellious. Rebellion takes different forms. Jesus actually speaks to this in a, in a parable given in Luke chapter 15. You might know it as the prodigal son. Better stated, it's the prodigal sons. Both boys are prodigal. So the younger comes to dad, and essentially he says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. If you were dead, I would have half of everything. And so remarkably, the father gives it to him. Can you imagine the pain from a son to a father? <laughs> and dad relents and he says, I'll do it. Now it's gonna take him some time. You know, he's not just writing him a check and going, here you go. Land has to be sold. Everything, accounts have to be settled. So all that takes time. This is hard, this is hurtful. No pain like family pain. And he does it and he gives him his share. And what does the son do? I'm out of here. And the text tells us that he goes out and essentially, what does he do is he lives life as if there is no God, as if there is no accountability. Trajectory, face down in the mud with pigs. He's bankrupt in every way. And his stomach is growling. No, no spot for a Jewish boy to be with the pigs. And he begins to think, the servants in my dad's house eat better than I do. Maybe I'll go back. My dad will receive me. and he'll treat me at least as one of his servants. Which is interesting, right? If you have a prodigal, 
There was a sense that the father still, in light of the pain, he said, light is always on for you, son, and the door is always unlocked, but you're gonna go do your thing. The text literally says the boy comes to his senses. When you live apart from God, you end up living a nonsensical life. He comes to his senses. He goes back to dad. Dad sees him. Dad runs out to him. My son was lost. Now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive. And he throws a party for him. Meanwhile, there's the older son. He's interesting. Because his attitude isn't one of celebration. It's one of bitterness. And he says to dad, I've been with you the whole time. And you never threw a party for me. I've served you all these years faithfully. You haven't treated me like you've treated this prodigal. Don't you see that both boys were using the dad? One did it by being good. You owe me. (laughs) I've been doing this for you so that you would do something for me. And when I didn't get it in return, now I'm upset. You owe me. At least the younger guy, he knows it. He knows what he did. One of my favorite paintings is by Rembrandt. It's called The Return of the Prodigal. Rembrandt had this amazing way of using light to draw you in to the characters he wanted you to see. So in this painting, notice where the light is focused, on the face of the father and on the face of who? The younger son? No, the older one. You can hardly make out the features in the younger son's face. Why? Because I think he's telling you, he might be a lesser player in this story. He might not be able to, he, he may not be the one you can relate to. Pay attention to the older son. Because you see him standing off in the corner, just kind of like, look at this kid. And look at my father embrace him. We're about to party for this guy. Where's my party? There are different ways of being rebellious. Can Christians be ruthless and heartless? Apparently this is the case for some churchgoers because Paul is speaking to them. Chapter one, he levels the God deniers. And for those who begin to think they're holier than thou, he says, no, 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 wait a minute. It's in you too. It's in you. Not only are they guilty of it, but they also fall under the same judgment. Verse two, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness? You know what that means to presume? To presume on someone's kindness, that's a person that has the audacity to take advantage of someone's goodness toward them, okay? That's what it means to presume on somebody. It's it's someone who has the audacity to take advantage of the the goodness that others have shown toward them. And so this is what he's he's putting forth to these church He's like, no, no, time out, wait a minute. Are you taking advantage of God's kindness? Are you taking advantage of his forbearance and patience? 
Well, there's something that you don't understand about the kindness of God and his purpose. The kindness of God should not be leading you to sin. It should be leading you away from sin. It's God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. And I'm so thankful that it's not the other way around. In pretty much every other worldview or religion or faith system, it's you have to perform, make God smile, and then he will accept you. But only in Christianity you have God reaching down to you and saying, in spite of our hostility that you've created because of your rebellion toward me, I'm gonna show you kindness. And that kindness is meant to motivate us to repentance. To repent literally means to change your mind. Formerly, I thought this way about what I was doing. Now, I think differently. Formerly, I thought this way about God, but I'm not gonna presume upon him anymore. I need to repent of that. Um, parents, have you ever had one of these kids where you've told them on more than, more, on more than one occasion, it's like, child, you are getting on my last nerve. <laughs> Child, you are getting on my last nerve. These can be adult children too. My first car was a 72 Ford Bronco. You don't know how I wish I still had that thing. Oh, if I had that thing now. 16 years old, driving late at night to see a movie with my friends. In an accident, my fault car is, is pretty banged up, and so I, I went home, and I knew I was going to tell my dad, and I actually woke him up, and I said, Dad, I was in a car accident, and I'm really nervous, you know, <clears throat> and um, my dad's always been fa- you know fairly level-headed guy, really level-headed guy, and so I said, Dad, you know, here's a situation, I was in a car accident, is everybody okay, are you okay, yeah, I'm fine, I said, but the car's pretty messed up, and he said, it's all right. Everybody gets into an accident at some point in their lives, you know. And I thought he would want to take a look at it like that. And he's just, he just, he said, we'll, we'll look at it in the morning. It's all right. It's all right. It's okay. Don't worry about it. We can fix a car. The important thing is you're okay. We'll deal with it in the morning. And I just remember, it's like, oh, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh, man. I fucking, I, my dad was kind. Because of my dad's kindness, it influenced the way I drove the car moving forward. See what I'm saying? Because I didn't want to put him in that situation. And because he was so gentle with me, I was like, wow. It kind of melted my heart. That's what kindness does. Now, fast forward 20, 25 years, my oldest calls me and says, dad, I wrecked the car and it's totaled. How do you think I responded to him? Hey, Channing, you okay? Yeah, is anybody with you? Yes, I had a friend. They okay? Yeah, everybody's okay. Okay, good. Hey, that's the important thing. We can replace a car. Hey, but everybody gets into an accident. Where do you think I learned that? From my dad. Additionally, my dad, I've told you before, a very blue-collar dude, worked with his hands his whole life, auto body repairman, mechanic. He would work, you know, all day, and then he would come home at night and he would repair the Bronco with his own hands. And I would watch him. And I thought, you know, I contributed to that. And he never said anything to me about it. He never criticized me. He never browbeat me. 
He didn't do any of that. And he was kind. Christian, do you know what it looks like to presume on the kindness of God? I'll give you a picture. This is the Christian who willfully and intentionally chooses to sin, thinking, God will take me back. Well, I'm just gonna go ahead and and participate in this because I've always wanted to, and I've been doing it habitually now. So I'm kind of trapped in it. (laughs) But God will forgive me. And so oftentimes there's this vicious cycle of like sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent. In the back of one's mind, there is that thought, God will always take me by. So I'll just go ahead and do it. God's kindness should not be leading you towards sin. It should be leading you away from it. And just because God doesn't, you know, like judge us immediately for what we do, doesn't mean we should play God for the fool. Some of us are doing that, playing God for the fool. And that's why what Paul says next is very sobering because essentially he says this is an issue of the heart and God always looks at the heart and sees the heart and don't think that God doesn't see what's actually happening within you. Verse five, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be Revealed Again, this is Paul saying, don't play God for the fool. God is very patient. He's long-suffering. He's kind. He initiates the kindness for us to respond, for our hearts to be melted. And we presume on that. We have the audacity to take that for granted. And God says, actually, now you fall under my condemnation. My, see, God is bound by only one thing, and that is his nature. God can't just turn a blind eye to all this stuff but it is an issue of the heart and God sees your heart, my heart, exactly as it is. That's why Paul's very, very, very careful in in emphasizing the fact that, hey, listen, churchgoers, watch out. Lest you think that you also aren't guilty. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by practice and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is an important point. He's going to flesh this out later, but let me tip the hand and, and tell you what he's saying. See, because in the Jewish context of Christianity, you have those Jews who had embraced Jesus as the Messiah, and the church in Rome was was mixed. You had Jews and Gentiles coming together under the umbrella of Christianity. Jews and Gentiles do not play together. Everybody's going, hey, what are these two groups doing together, man? And and they didn't have a word for it. What unites them? Well, they're Christians, Christ, they're little Christs. The word Christian actually comes as a result of all these diverse people coming together because like culture was like, ah, this doesn't happen. Wait, what's uniting these, these what would, uh, would otherwise be enemies? Oh, it's they both embrace Jesus as the Messiah. Now there's this one new family that's being built, and everybody's like, whoa, they're Christians. And God shows no partiality, because for the Jew, they thought, it went from God to us to everybody else. 
God entrusted the Israelites with his word, not the Amorites or the Malachites or the Jebusites. He didn't entrust them. He chose the Israelites of all people. We're good. We have Abraham's blood, the great patriarch flowing through our veins. So we're good to go. And Paul just says, wrong. There's no partiality with God. Don't think that's going to get you off the hook because it's an issue of the heart, not an issue of your blood or your race or your calling or your chosenness. Chapter one, he levels the God deniers, but in chapter two, he's starting to get religious people thinking now. And he says, even the Gentiles, those who weren't given God's laws, who don't have the Old Testament in their hand, they weren't given the Ten Commandments. That came to Moses, man, to God's people. They don't have God's laws in their hands, but you know what? They have it written on their hearts, so they, and they have a conscience. Where do you think that comes from? So even though God didn't give them their laws, they still know. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, they do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So here's what he's saying. Even though the Gentiles don't have, let's say, the Old Testament of Jesus' day, right? The scriptures that were given. You go to a Jewish synagogue and bam, there's the scriptures. There's the law given to the Jews. Well, Gentiles weren't given that. They don't have it. He says, yeah, but here's the deal. They know right from wrong. <laughs> they know intuitively that when they take something that's not theirs, they're like, hey, this probably isn't cool. Like when, when, I, when, when they go after their neighbor's spouse and that causes a lot of conflict in the community, in the tribe, they're like, yeah, I probably shouldn't be doing this but I really want to do it anyways. They know, they know. They have it written on their hearts. They know right from wrong. The Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer, he wrote a book called The God Who Is There. This book was very influential in helping me come to a, a commitment to Christ. But he, he, summed up, he sums up Romans chapter two by saying this. He said, it's like God has this invisible tape recorder, okay? Now, we don't have tape recorders today. He said this a long time ago. So let me put this in a modern context for you, all right? Imagine it this way. You have Neuralink implanted in your head. You know what I'm talking about? You've got Neuralink implanted in your head. And what's happening is every thought, every attitude, everything that your eyes capture, everything that you participate in, every attitude, it's all being uploaded to the cloud. And then one day, you take your last breath, and you're in the presence of the God who created you. Now, there might be some who would say, oh, I think I know it's coming, accountability. But you can't hold me accountable, God, because I didn't believe you existed. Or, you can't judge me, God, because I never read your book, so I didn't know. I never read it. I didn't know. God says, okay, I am the most impartial judge the world has ever known. And so here's what we're going to do. We won't use those standards. We'll use something different. And then all of a sudden, there's this massive download that begins to happen but it's very selective because the download includes 
every moment you've ever said, hey, if it was me, I would, or every moment you've ever said, I would never, or when you said, well, I can't believe this person did that. Every time you've ever, ever uttered those words. And so what you realize is, whoa, 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 oh. God is using my standard of judgment to judge me. Okay, forget about the Bible. Forget about the existence of God. Let's just use your own standard. And all of a sudden, you start to get a little warm. <laughs> because you begin to realize, as everything is displayed, wow, I, uh, I haven't lived up to my own standards with any kind of consistency at all. I, therefore am condemned by myself. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We don't know how the people in this congregation responded, but the truth is we all need a new heart. Paul begins then to point out the specific ways in which some churchgoers are guilty. Again, pointing the finger at uh, his Jewish brothers. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, but you, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, you're a light to those who are in the darkness, you are an instructor of the foolish, you're a teacher of children, you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? See, Paul and Jesus are doing the same thing here because in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, Paul says, or Jesus says, if you look on a woman Lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. So in other words, what he's saying is he's saying, you have to read through the law because if you read through the law, what it's telling you is this. There's something within you. There's some seeds that have been planted. It's just a matter of how much you've watered them. In the right condition, with the right amount of water, we might see the action, but you have to be honest with yourself and know those seeds have been planted in you. You've lusted. See, it's already in your heart. So again, the religious people are like, well, I've never done that. Yeah, but, but what, what Paul and Jesus are saying, yeah, but the attitude, the disposition, the desire, it's there. It's there. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. And then he has this, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is super scathing. So notice what he says is, he's like, if you think you're a Jew and you're, you think you're high and mighty because God gave the Israelites his word, he spoke to Moses, the covenant was through Abraham, and it's like, man, we're in, man, because we've got the blood, we've got Jewish blood, we are in. Paul says, man, you couldn't be more wrong. In fact, God showed you his kindness in, in blessing you with all those things, and you took his kindness and you made it a point of arrogance. Yeah, you gotta go through us if you wanna get to God. You gotta become like us if you wanna make God smile. 
<laughs> Paul's like, you know what? It shouldn't have made you arrogant. It should have made you humble. You should have been humbled by the fact that God did this for us. Instead, you used it as a point of pride and arrogance. And the Gentiles, the non-Jews, look at you as the ones who have been had all these crazy blessings by God, and you don't even practice what you preach. And that's why they badmouth God, because they look at your hypocrisy, and they're like, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Wow, man. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who judges. Read through the law, not just the surface. We're so caught up on external behaviors. But, and when we, here's the thing. When you get caught up on just the external behaviors, you know what you begin to think to yourself? I'm not that bad. I've never committed mass murder. If you've ever, Jesus says in, in the Beatitudes and Sermon on the Mount, if you've ever wished or if you've ever thought someone was worthless, <laughs> that's a murderous seed. So in Paul's day, um, there was this guy named Seneca. If you're a philosophy student, you know about Seneca. Very influential. He lived in Rome at the time Paul would have been there. Very famous individual. I have no doubt that Paul would know of Seneca. And Seneca was a stoic. He was a moralist. He believed in living an ethical life and being a person of integrity. And this was his teaching. He had many, many followers throughout Rome. The problem is Emperor Nero was a maniac and wanted to do anything and everything he wanted to whoever he wanted to. He had full authority and full power. So this guy was really gnarly, very nefarious and did some really bad things, you know. I mean, he had an affinity for young boys, and this guy was just, he was, he was dark. And as Seneca would teach morality, Nero eventually got tired of it and accused him of being a traitor. Well, it's over for Seneca at this point. And so he had one of two options. Either a Roman soldier will run you through, or you can take the Stoic route, Seneca, and you can kill yourself. So here was this man, Seneca, who was supposed to be this, this pillar of morality. He dies. And then later it's discovered that Seneca, the preacher of morality, was horribly flawed. He could not keep his own morals. In fact, it was discovered that he participated in some of the very things that some of his enemies participated in. And one commentator describes the modern stoic or moralist in this way. Though they want to uphold an external moral virtue value system, also possibly known as virtue signaling, they cannot, ma- they cannot maintain it in their own lives because they cannot restrain their own sinfulness, so they cover a really darkened heart with a cloak of light. Wow, (laughs) that's profound. But that is a message that needs to land with the church. And I think in part, that's what Paul is trying to say. 
in the church, there can be tremendous darkness. But it's clothed with light. It has this appearance of being something desirable and good. But what's really happening underneath the surface? Well, God doesn't show any partiality, whether you're Jew or Gentile, because it's an issue of the heart. And so, don't play God for the fool, Paul says. Don't presume or take advantage of his kindness, because his kindness was meant to lead you to repentance. So, I think this is why, in part, Jesus, before he leaves this planet, of all the things he could, he could say, he could leave his disciples with, he says, remember my death. Remember my death, my burial, my resurrection. No greater love has won than, than this, that he would lay down his life for another. So Jesus speaks it, and then he does it as the ultimate act of kindness. And he says, do this and remember me. Because the kindness of Jesus is that softening agent that does melt your heart. Kindness is not meant to lead us to sin, but away from it. So I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. Before we take communion, I wanna let you know that this is something that Christians have been doing for a couple thousand years since Jesus commanded it. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you can let this time pass by you. Although I would encourage you to wrestle with some of the things we've talked about today. And by the way, we've prayed for you before you came that you would do so. And for the rest, we maybe we need to take this time of introspection and silently ask God, have we made some wrong presumptions? And so I've asked Chris to lead us in a song and just gonna ask you to stay seated. We're not gonna put the words up on the screen, but I just asked him to sing this song over you as you sit and you contemplate whatever the Spirit of God might be speaking to you. There'll be some verses on the screen as well. And then when the time is right, I'll come back up and I'll, I'll lead us through. Jesus is with his disciples. He takes the bread. He breaks it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat the bread, do so and remember me. He takes the cup. He says, this cup represents something new, a new covenant in my blood, in my blood. Old covenant had the blood of animals being sacrificed. New covenant, Jesus' blood, because he was perfect, sinless. He could carry on himself the sins of the world. 
and he did it for you. That's kindness for you. That's not, those, are, those are two very important words that Jesus adds to this. Body broken for you. Blood spilled for you. As often as you drink the cup, do so and remember me. Father, we're grateful for your kindness. God, we do not want to presume upon it. So Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, you would continue to speak to our hearts. Pray that the disposition of our hearts would be softened because we understand who you are. We understand your love, your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, all of those things that are so beautifully represented in the cross. We ask it in the name of the one who makes it all possible. His name is Jesus Christ and God's people said, Amen.